Now I have two texts, so really it's three verses, but two texts, and I want to speak to you tonight about Mary Magdalene. And my first text is found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, and the verse 9. I'll just read it to you, and then if you turn to John, chapter 20, we'll have the first two verses in John, chapter 20. Now, when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And then coming to John 20, the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. There are 11 post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ detailed in the Scriptures. Some of them are very short, and yet the period covered is a period of 40 days. We might well ask, what was Christ doing during the times when he wasn't appearing to the disciples or to other people? Uh, Well, We get a hint of it in Acts chapter 1 because we are told uh, by uh, Luke in Acts chapter 1, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the Spirit, Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles. So he had been instructing the disciples. Perhaps it took a long time giving them instructions, showing them what they were to do after he had ascended into heaven. And in a sense, they were left bereft of his presence. But of course, they were not going to be truly bereft because he made a promise to them. He says, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. So he's saying to them, I'm going away. He gives them instructions. And then he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come and you will go forth and you will preach the word in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and you'll spread out the Christian church across the face of the earth. The first appearance was to this lady I want us to think about this evening, Mary Magdalene. She's Mary really of Magdala. It was a prosperous fishing village on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to put focus on her, and the first thing that we're going to think about is her background. We are told by both Mark and Luke that Christ cast seven devils or seven demons out of Mary. Some people think that she is the fallen woman who uh, washed the feet of Christ with her tears and Uh, dried his feet with the hairs of her head and then anointed his feet. But there is no evidence to that effect. Uh, And it casts an aspersion upon this lady, giving the impression that she was a harlot, that she was a fallen woman, or as we might say, a woman of the streets. There's no evidence of that. Certainly she was a sinner, and she was gripped by the powers of darkness. What must it be like? Or what must it have been like uh, to be uh, 
possessed by seven demons, seven evil spirits. You think of the man who was called Legion, or at least he answered to the name of Legion, the demoniac of Gadara. Here was a man who had supernatural strength, not divine strength, but supernatural strength. When they tied him up in chains, he broke the chains. Uh, He was naked among the tombs. He was more content amongst the dead than he was amongst the living. And when they tied him up, he broke the chains. And day and night, he was wandering through the tombs, more content uh, with uh, those uh, corpses uh, than he was with living people. And he was crying and terrifying uh, the whole neighborhood. Uh, They must have been terrified at the thought that he would come out of the tombs and come down anywhere near where they lived. Here is a woman, she's not quite as possessed, although we just don't know how much she was possessed, but seven demons holding this poor woman, destroying her life. And uh, we can see that she was most miserable. Christ came on the scene. What a person to come into conflict with the demons. Wouldn't have mattered if there were a million demons inside that woman. Christ is the Almighty. and Christ cast out the evil spirits. And from then on, she was a changed woman and a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a point at which we must pause. You may not be, I may not be possessed by an evil spirit or seven evil spirits, or a legion of evil spirits. But we, by nature, are found in the great grip of sin. Every man, woman, young person, boy and girl, uh, from Adam's fallen race, is a sinner. And sin, as I tried to show you on different occasions, is a most vile and ugly thing. We don't see it Uh, as it really is, but God does. God hates sin. He hates it with a perfect hatred. And here is this woman. She's a sinner. And here we are. We are sinners. We might be sinners now, saved by grace, but in our state of nature, we are sinners. God describes us well in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned. There is none righteous. No, not one. Ecclesiastes tells us there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So uh, sin is everywhere. I hardly need to tell you that. You've only to look around at the world in which we live. The filth, the vileness, the perversion, and then of course uh, the bloodshed and the anarchy. What terrible things have taken place in this world, down through the centuries since God created Adam and Eve. We can think of the first man born into the world. What does he display? A sinful nature. He displays the heart of a murderer. He's proud. He's arrogant. He won't listen to God. And when his brother remonstrates with him, he rises up and he slays him. And when God speaks to him, He says, am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. But he was responsible for his death. And then things became so depraved uh, that it repented God. It made him sorry 
Can you take that in? It made him sorry that he had created man on the earth. And he said, every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And man was obsessed with himself, obsessed with his sinful pleasures, obsessed with his sinful ways, until God said, I will destroy man. And he told Noah to build an ark. And when that ark was built, so despicable was the attitude of the people that no one would enter except eight people. Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. All the people laughed at the thought of judgment, but judgment came heavily upon the world. And we are cut from the same cloth. Let's not think that we are different. When Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He says, Among whom also we all, and Paul's including himself, we all had our conversation in times past, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and whereby nature the children of wrath, even as others. By nature, God is angry. God is grieved with you. God is grieved with me. We are sinners. And here is Mary Magdalene. We might sit self-righteously and condemn her, but remember, by nature, we are not superior to Mary Magdalene, out of whom Christ cast the seven devils. And I want to say that as soon as she was saved, she became a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Afterward, it says, when Christ went through every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, the twelve were with him. Certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, Uh, And uh, we are told that these women, they came and they ministered uh, of their substance, of the things that they had, they ministered to Christ and to his disciples. They're changed. They're different. Instead of uh, behaving in an evil fashion, perhaps cursing the Lord, perhaps indulging in sins that we would not want to talk about, now, They're found with Christ, modest, wholesome, pure, upright, and showing love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a need. He has a need for some food. He has need for helpers. And there they are to the fore. And they're not ashamed to perform the most menial task in order to assist the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the question for you and me is this. If we profess the name of Jesus Christ, has there been a change in our lives? Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. A new creature, 
as if you were a totally different person. We can have very little confidence in people who claim to be saved and live like the devil. Christ said, by their fruits ye shall know them. We're not preaching salvation by works, but we're looking for evidence. And that's why that little epistle of James has been inspired by God to show us that we're not to be hearers only of the word, but to be doers. There's to be a transformation in our lives. After all, if Christ dwells within, there will be holy desires, holy thoughts. There will be love for him. If the Spirit of God dwells in our lives, then he will prompt us to do what's right. He'll convict us of things that are wrong. He'll hold us back from throwing ourselves wholesale into the things that we indulged in before we were saved. And didn't the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Is there enough evidence, I ask you, to show that you are changed, to show that you are a child of God? I realize that for some people brought up in Christian homes, who never went deep into the things of the world, it can be difficult. They say, well, I was a decent person. I was a modest person. I was an honest person before I came to Christ. How can I see a difference in my life? Well, you can see a difference. Do you love Christ? Do you long for him? Do you relish reading his word? Do you delight in coming to hear the Bible expounded? Do you love to be on your knees before God in prayer? The hymn writer put it this way. Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend when I kneel in prayer and with thee, my God, I commune as friend with friend. Some of the most precious experiences that the child of God has are experiences of the Lord's presence when he or she is bowed before God. You spend time in prayer and you feel your heart being warmed. You feel the Lord drawing near. There's a melting. There's a burden for souls. There's a love for Christ engendered. And you say, I love this. This is so sweet, so sweet to walk with God and to experience the presence of of my Savior. So, I say this to you, if you are saved, uh, do you show the same attachment to Christ as Mary Magdalene did? Because her attachment was a wonderful attachment because I want to make a second point and say that her loyalty to the Savior never faded. Uh, Let's move forward in time from the time that she's saved. Let's imagine she was saved early in the ministry of Christ. We don't know exactly the point at which she was saved when he cast out the seven devils, but we move forward to the time when Christ is rejected by the Jewish nation. And what do we find in John chapter 19, verse 25? Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. We would expect her to be there. It's her son. She's a godly woman. 
She loves the Lord Jesus and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. There she is. The disciples, where are they? They've gone. Where's Peter? He's not to be seen. Where's John, the beloved, who leaned upon his breast? He's not to be seen. They're gone. They all forsook him and fled. I know John came back to the cross, but the disciples largely, they have fled. In a way, they abandoned him. It was temporary, I know, but they've gone. But where is Mary? She's a weak woman in many respects. We talk about the weaker sex, and please don't take me wrong, because in many respects, they are the stronger sex. Well, there she is, Mary Magdalene. And what do we do? Now they're stood by the cross of Jesus. And I leave the other names out, Mary Magdalene. Let's jump forward a few days. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early. We read and we read it in our text. Cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark. And she came unto the sepulchre and seeth a stone taken away from the sepulchre. And she was distressed. She was distressed. She had come to pay her love and show her love in the anointing, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ with sweet spices. She's coming expecting a dead body, and she comes, and there's no body in the tomb. But the point is, when it's still dark, there she is, coming in the darkness. She's female. She's what we call a weaker sex physically. Uh, and there's nobody there to defend her. And she comes. At the very first opportunity, when the Sabbath is over, she's coming early uh, to see the, the Lord Jesus Christ and to pay her devotion of love to what she believes is the dead body of the Savior. And then we find that when she found the tomb empty, she ran, she came to Peter and to the other disciple, that's John, whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. She's in distress. See, her love continues. Her love continues. She didn't just minister to Christ when he was popular, when he was healing the multitudes, when he was preaching great messages, when he was confounding the scribes and the Pharisees. She was there when he was crucified. And there she gazed at that center cross and wept many tears, I've no doubt. And then at the first opportunity, when the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath is over, she comes to the sepulcher to show her continued love for Christ. And when she was there, we are told that she stood without at the sepulchre weeping. She's been to tell the disciples the body's gone. We don't know where it's gone. She returns to the sepulchre. She stands there weeping. And as she wept, it says she stooped down, looked into the sepulchre, and she saw two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the foot, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Why are you weeping, Mary? Why is your heart broken? She saith unto them, Because 
They have taken away my Lord. He's still her Lord. Now the Jews have rejected him. The word that has gone out around Jerusalem, the imposter's dead. But she's, she's still owning him. She says, they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Again, I remind you, the disciples, in fear, they have run for it. And remember also that women, I've mentioned the weaker sex, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but women were much more vulnerable in the first century AD than they are today. And they had far lower standing in society. It's it's an interesting thing that Christ appeared to Mary Magdalene because the testimony of a woman was not accepted in many instances in a court of law. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus said, let not the testimony of a woman be admitted on account of their levity or laxity and the boldness of their sex. So Josephus, who was normally a fair-minded man, he says, don't listen to what a woman says. She comes into a court of law, don't accept her testimony. And there is this poor woman, and she cares so deeply for the Lord Jesus Christ. It was love to her Savior that drove her on and enabled her to stand head and shoulders above the apostles and even show, now I put it this carefully, even to show more apparent devotion than Mary, the mother of Christ. Now, there may be a reason why Mary, what we call the Virgin Mary, wasn't there. So I I don't want to labor that point too much. You know, the Song of Solomon says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. Love is so powerful. When I was in London, we had a lady came to our midweek meeting uh, and uh, we used to give her a lift home and she came from the West Indies uh, and she told us about her husband and so on and her husband hadn't appeared at this stage and I assumed he was dead. And I said to her, how long has your husband been dead? Oh, she says, he's not dead. Uh, He's alive. And ever after, uh, well, until I met the man, I used to ask her how the dead man was doing uh, because I had assumed he was dead. But she told me the story of their love and their marriage. Uh, They had known one another in the West Indies. I think it was Jamaica they lived in. uh, And they had been to the same church. And her future husband had never approached her uh, to date her, to take her out um, in any way. And he came over to a Bible college to London and then he wrote to her and proposed marriage to her. And he quoted this verse, many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. And I thought about that. The mighty Atlantic standing between her and her future husband. And there he was, over in England, in London, and and the floods, the the, the mighty Atlantic could not drown his love. 
So he wrote to her, he proposed marriage, and she agreed. And she came over to London, and they were very happily married. And after a time, he started to come to the church, and he started to come to the prayer meeting, and he prayed really well. It was a blessing uh, to hear him pray. One Sunday morning, he was coming to church. He took a stroke, and he was never able uh, to come back to the church. And uh, I conducted uh, his funeral service uh, when that stroke eventually uh, claimed his life. Well, here is a woman, and her love cannot be quenched. She goes to the tomb. Christ isn't there. There's no body there. Now she's looking for a dead person. And yet, her, her love is the same. She says, they have taken away my Lord. He's still her Lord. She still cares for him. Charles Wesley said, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O my Savior, hide. Till the storm of life is past, safe unto the haven guide, oh, receive my soul at last. And John Newton, I think I mentioned him the other week, he said, What think ye of Christ as the test to try both your state and your scheme? You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you and mercy or wrath is your lot. You see, here is a woman, and she deeply cares for the Lord Jesus Christ. And love is a very powerful motive. When you see what Christ has done for you, when you see, as we saw this morning, the judgment that he bore for sinners, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Your response should be one of wholehearted surrender to the Savior. I may say that when you see the beauty of Christ's love and the greatness and the depths of Christ's love, you want to live for him, you want to serve him, and you will be willing to die for him. That's what makes martyrs. That's what makes zealous believers and missionaries. Back in the second century AD, a man by the name of Polycarp was the Bishop of Smyrna, which is on the western side of modern Turkey. It's called Izmir today. And Polycarp, in a time of persecution, was hunted down. He was found. He could have escaped. He refused to escape. He, he was given a very simple offer uh, to, to bless the Caesar uh, and to show some sign of sacrifice to the Caesar, to the emperor, and he was threatened that if he didn't do it, he would be burnt alive. And his response, he was 86 years of age. He says, 86 years have I served the Lord, and he has never done me any wrong. And Polycarp, the old man at 86, laid down his life, was burnt to death, because of his deep love for Jesus Christ. And I may add something more here. You'll never be a soul winner if you don't have a burning love for the Savior. Now, time is running away, and I've a couple more points to make. And one of them is, of, I think, immense importance. 
when we think of Mary Magdalene, I say this to you, a measure of ignorance caused her great sorrow at the time of Christ's death. You find that she's standing weeping at an empty tomb and she's looking. She's looking in the wrong way for the wrong type of person. She's looking for a corpse. She's not looking for a living saviour. And you know, if she had grasped the teaching of Christ in his ministry, she would have known that Christ had prophesied that he would die and that he would rise again the third day. She hadn't grasped that. And indeed, the disciples hadn't grasped it either. And she would probably have been in the company of the disciples when Christ made that statement. It was based on the Old Testament because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Old Testament Scriptures. And you know, we can widen this point out, and I don't want to stretch the message unnecessarily to show how many times we are depressed because of ignorance or a lack of meditation, a lack of understanding of the truths of God. We misunderstand, uh, or at least many people do, the, the doctrine of eternal security. And sadly, there are people, and they are depressed. They think that salvation uh, is, is a, a very conditional thing. As long as I walk with God, I'm saved. The moment I backslide, I'm unsaved again. Then I come back to the Lord, and I'm saved again. And then if I slip away again, I'm unsaved again. Yet God's word tells us that when we have Christ as Savior, when we're truly saved, we are saved for time and we're saved for eternity. What did Christ say? My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. I go no further in that statement. Eternal life, it lasts forever. Peter says we're kept by the power of God kept not by our own power, kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. When you're truly saved, you are saved for all eternity. And there are many other things that we may misunderstand. The, uh, the teaching of God's sovereignty. Uh, we sing, sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise, all my times are in thy hand, all events at thy command. And then when trouble comes, when trouble comes, oh boy, does our thought of the sovereignty of God go out the window? Look at the state of the land. Look at the state of the church. We're in the last of the last days, and then we stretch it even further. We're in the last of the last of the last of the last days, and there's going to be no revival, and all is dim and gloom. Can God not send revival? <coughs> Did he not send it uh, in the uh, 16th century in the Great Reformation? Did he not send it in the 18th century to, through men like Whitfield and Wesley and others? Did he not send it in the 19th century to America, uh, to parts of uh, the United Kingdom, to Ulster in 1859 and so on? Did he not send it to the uh, Isle of Lewis uh, in the mid-20th century? Can he not send it again? Has he not been working in other countries, especially in places like China? Yes, <coughs> but yet we say 
the last days, there cannot be revival. How joyless we may become (coughs) through misunderstanding or misappropriating the word of God. And you can think of our circumstances when we get depressed. When Jacob was depressed, he was approximately 128 or 129, just short of 130. And (coughs) his sons, they told him about uh, their brother Simeon, who's held as a prisoner in Egypt uh, by the uh, prime minister in Egypt. And he had to send down the youngest son, Benjamin. And he got so depressed, misunderstanding the purpose of God, in ignorance, he said, me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not. And you'll take Benjamin away. And then he added these words, totally contrary to the will of God. All these things are against me. It was the will of God that all those things were working for him. But Jacob said, all these things are against me. You might say he's an old man. He's not in the best of health. And he's pessimistic as a result. And it's just the pessimism of old age. I'll take you to a man who's 100 years younger. David in 1 Samuel 27. And he says, I'll one day perish by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape. And he says, when I get away to the land of the Philistines, Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more than any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. Well... He's only what? Well, he's only 28 or 29. He's 100 years younger than Jacob. And he's foretelling his doom if he stays in Israel. In spite of the fact that he has been anointed by Samuel as the future king of Israel. God has chosen him to be king. And he says, I'll I'll perish. I'll perish by the hand of Saul if I don't escape. And we can get so depressed through ignorance and looking at circumstances, and not committing ourselves fully to the Lord. But then I I want to finish on this note. The Savior brought joy and blessing to this devoted disciple of his. She was the first, the first to see the risen Christ. Isn't that amazing? Mary Magdalene saw the risen Christ before Mary, his mother, saw him. She saw the risen Christ before John the Beloved saw him, before Peter, the most adventurous of the disciples, saw him. She saw him first. And I believe there's a reason she had such love for him. In spite of her uh, misunderstanding and her ignorance, her love never wavered. She loved him. My Lord, you've taken my Lord away. I want to be near him. And Christ came near to her. And it was the way that he spoke her name that identified him. And today Christ speaks, speaks through his word, speaks to us as we draw near to him. And he dispels ignorance and sorrow. Uh, And that's why we need to spend much time in his presence, much time in his word, much time at the throne of grace. And this woman was overwhelmed with joy. Uh, Christ had to say to her, touch me not. Adam Clark, the commentator, explains the expression means 
do not cling to me. He wanted her to go to the disciples with the information that he was alive. And she called him Rabboni. It's a stronger expression in rabbi. It means my great master. How wonderful. She's expressing her confidence, her power, her her confidence, her trust in his eternal power and Godhead. She's given the great privilege also, or was given it, of telling the disciples that Christ had triumphed over over death. And today, where is she? She's with the Savior that she loved so deeply. We may follow, we may follow in the steps of this wonderful woman and enjoy as she did the Lord's presence, the Lord's blessing, the clearance in our minds and hearts of any misunderstanding. And we may witness to others about him. And of course, if we're saved and we love him, we will be with him in heaven. Take a leaf out of Mary Magdalene's book. What a great woman, made great by the grace of God, exhibiting gratitude and love and wholehearted devotion right to the end and rejoicing now with a greater love and a greater devotion in heaven. How is it with you? Do you follow in her steps? Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray, bless thy truth to every waiting heart. Teach me, Lord. Teach each one of us. Cleanse us from all sin. Make us like Mary Magdalene, pure and holy and excited at meeting Christ and longing for his touch, longing for his nearness, longing to cling to him in life and to cling to him in death. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final hymn, we just sing a verse of it, is 311. Come to the Saviour, make no delay. Here in his word he has shown us the way. Here in our midst he's standing today, tenderly saying, come. 311.